Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. So glad you could be with us today. Minnesota is the 23rd state to make it legal for adults to use marijuana products recreationally across the board. For decades, marijuana has been illegal and hidden from public view in our state. Then last year, gummies and beverages containing THC derived from hemp became legal and pretty popular. And now we know that in the near future, it will be legal for Minnesotans to use, possess, grow, and even sell recreational marijuana. And in some cases, previous convictions related to marijuana will be expunged from records. This hour, we're going to talk about this shift in attitude towards cannabis and what the new marijuana law means for people who use cannabis products and for the people who do not. I want to hear from you. The phone lines are open. Now that cannabis is legal in Minnesota, what questions do you have for our guest today about where marijuana will be sold, how and where it can be used and grown, and how it will be regulated? Call us at 651 651- Two two seven six thousand. Again, the number is six five one two two seven six thousand. You can also call eight hundred two four two twenty eight. 28. Let's bring in our guests. We have in the studio this morning, Senator Lindsey Port, a DFL senator from Burnsville and the chief author of the bill legalizing cannabis in the Minnesota Senate. Good morning to you, Senator Port. Nice to meet you. Good morning, Angela. It's great to be here. Also, we have with us on the line, Bo Kilmer. Bo is a senior policy researcher at RAND, and that is a nonpartisan think tank that's headquartered there in Santa Monica, California, where he's also the director of the RAND Drug Policy Research. Center. He's the co-author of the policy book, Marijuana Legalization, What Everyone Needs to Know. Welcome back to the program, Bo. Good morning. Good morning, Angela. It's great to be with you and Senator Port. All right. Thank you for making time for us. Lots of questions I have, and I know that our listeners have. Uh, Senator Port, one week ago, uh, just Last Tuesday, you were at the state capitol watching Governor Walls sign the bill that legalized adult-use cannabis here in Minnesota. And as I mentioned, uh, you carried the bill in the Senate. What was it like for you personally to see uh, months, maybe years of efforts uh, result in a brand new law? It's a great question, Angela. Um, It really was a moment to take a breath and sort of watch the impact, um, even just that day of the signing, on community members' faces. Uh, This is something that the community has been working on really deeply for many, many years. Um, And really, the key piece for me and uh, the backbone of this bill is the expungement piece. And so really being able to talk with those families who have been harmed by prohibition, who have seen, you know, devastation to their communities, watching them know that some of that harm is going to start being repaired. It was really, I, I don't know that I have the words for it. It really was exactly the reason I took the bill. And it's really gratifying to see it begin to start to do that work. So the expungement piece, we're going to talk about that more, but tell me about that. Yeah, that was really the cornerstone of why I took this bill on. Um, it, you know, prohibition doesn't work. Uh, We've seen that if prohibition worked, we would have, you know, fixed all of the harms related to cannabis 50 years ago. And that just hasn't happened. Uh, But what it has done is really devastate communities, particularly black communities. Uh, In Minnesota, white Minnesotans and black Minnesotans use cannabis at roughly the same rate. But if you're black in Minnesota, you are almost seven times more likely to be prosecuted for it. So really, the harm has been disproportionately borne by communities of color. And this expungement piece is the cornerstone of it. So if you have a misdemeanor 
you know, possession uh, conviction on your record, it will be automatically expunged. And if you have a felony uh, conviction for sale or for possession, um, it will be looked at by a board individually on a case-by-case basis to see if it should be resentenced into something smaller or uh, expunged altogether based on the circumstances. Now, Bo, you've studied cannabis legislation in other states and in other countries as well. Uh, From what you've read about what is now law here in Minnesota, what jumps out to you uh, about what we have here in Minnesota with our new cannabis law? Bo? Well, you know, as Senator Port said, uh, the fact that it allows for automatic expungement, I think it's a really big deal. You know, when Washington and Colorado first legalized, you know, 10 years ago, expungement wasn't part of the conversation. And then over time, as other states legalized, they began to allow some offenses to be expunged, but oftentimes they would still put the onus on the individual. You know, they would have to petition the court. They might have to hire a lawyer, right? And, you know, depending on the amount of resources you have, you know, that would determine whether or not you could actually have the offense expunged. Uh, but by making it automatic and kind of putting the onus on the uh, on the state, you know that's a big deal, and that's going to make it uh, uh, much more impactful for Minnesotans. So, as we talk about uh, when we say expungement, we're talking about removing uh, a conviction from someone's record. Uh, Bo, tell me, what does having that on your record or having that come up in a background check? What does that do for someone or, or to their lives? Well, if, if we step back in general, if you have something on your criminal record, um, you know, it can make it harder to get a job. Um, you know, there are a lot of kind of barriers that it creates. And in the United States, if you get convicted of a drug offense, there are oftentimes a number of additional collateral consequences that come um, with, uh, with that particular type of conviction. And, you know, it can be harder to get access to housing in some places, harder to get access to income and nutritional support. And so by expunging this, um, you know, you're going to be able to remove that from their criminal records. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, one of the other things that I thought was interesting about the bill um, that was passed in Minnesota is, and I don't know how frequently this happens, but it sounds like in Minnesota, if you're an individual and you're receiving, you know, uh, income or nutritional assistance from the state and you get a drug conviction, you then are subject to random drug testing. And if you test positive once, you know, your uh, benefits can be reduced. And if you test uh, positive twice, you can actually lose all of those benefits. And one of the things that I thought was interesting about the bill is that it essentially removes cannabis from that. And so, um, you know, I haven't seen much evidence that those types of collateral consequences, you know, actually you know, do anything to benefit families. And so to see that removed, I think, makes a lot of sense. All right, Senator Port, uh, let's talk about some of the other highlights of the new law, um, taking time to talk about what's going to change and when, the when part, very important. But the first thing is that uh, we say for adults. So this law legalizes the possession and use of marijuana for Minnesotans 21 and older. So let's talk about that part, the age uh, requirement and, um, and, and, and when. When does this all start? Of course, yeah. So we we decided early on to make this a 21 plus um, age that we wanted to to put that dividing line. It's what we have for alcohol. It's what we've moved tobacco to. It made a lot of sense to sort of use the existing infrastructure that people understand. Um, and we know that there can be um, you know consequences or 
effects on developing brains. Um, so we wanted to make sure that we limited access for young people. And the easiest way to do that was to put it in a place where you are carded uh, and it's not just sort of out in the public all over. Um, mm -hmm. So that was our reasoning for doing putting it there um, at that age. And really, I, I think it's it's something that's easy to understand for Minnesotans to understand. Um, and so, you know, the law changes mostly on August 1st. That's when the possession limits um, change and you are able to possess up to two ounces on your person and up to two pounds in your home. You are able to grow uh, your own plants, up to eight plants with four of them flowering at any one time starting in August. Um, but really, you know, communities won't see cannabis dispensaries for probably 12 to 18 months. We're Meaning places that sell them. Exactly. Like We're products. expecting that in early January of 2025, just because it's going to take time to set up a whole agency um, to do the licensing, the regulations, the rulemaking, all of that, and then people will have to apply for those licenses. And so we're expecting licenses to go out in early 2025. Now, uh, are there restrictions on use where you can use it? Like, is it any and everywhere? Or is it only in, in private properties? Or how does that work? Yeah, so that's going to depend a little bit city to city. Um, cities will be able to uh, in in August, uh, you know, decide if they want you to be able to use in public spaces at parks and things like that. Um, so a city can adopt a local ordinance just like they can for smoking. Every city across Minnesota. They could do that individually. Yeah. Yep. So we can um, see differences depending on what city you're in, what you can, where you can and cannot smoke, for instance. Correct. Yep. Just like you can for cigarettes. Um, you know, people can ban smoking. Cities can ban smoking on public grounds, um, have non-smoking areas, things like that. And that will be the same um, for public consumption. You also can't consume in your motor vehicle. Um, just like alcohol, it's sort of an open container law. So um, you cannot consume in your motor vehicle. Um, and then the the final sort of place where there's a restriction is on smoking in multifamily units. Um, so if you live in a multifamily unit. Like an apartment building? Exactly. Example. Yep. Um, there is a ban on smoking. You can still use the edibles, uh, the tinctures, uh, you know, the oils, that sort of thing. But there is a ban on smoking. Just, you know, many landlords ban smoking in buildings anyway. Um, but that was uh, a public health concern that we addressed in the bill. All right. We're getting lots of phone calls uh, as we talk about the new cannabis law here in Minnesota. Answering your questions, call us at 651-227-6000. And before I get to our first phone call, um, Senator report. I want to ask you one more question. Uh, the law creates a new state agency called the Office of Cannabis Management that, that um, uh, will be tasked with licensing cannabis and hemp businesses and overseeing um, a, a legal recreational market, um, as well as the existing medical cannabis and hemp derived markets. So who and how is in this office and how does that work and when? Absolutely. It's starting right away. Um, if you noticed, if folks could go and look on, uh, it was on Twitter and a couple of other places. There's already a website up um, by the state. Uh, if you just search Minnesota 
cannabis But the uh, staff is not in place yet for that office? So we're moving. Uh, it, it sort of takes existing staff. We have a cannabis medical program right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that staff is the staff that is starting this. It's moving from the Board of Pharmacy to um, Minnesota Department of Health. And they're working in um, along with the Department of Ag, um, who has overseen the hemp um, portion of so the law. So pulling it all together. Exactly. Okay. Now let's take some phone calls. Uh in Plymouth, we have a phone call from John. John, thanks you for calling in. And what questions do you have about Minnesota's new cannabis law? Yeah, so I've read some of the summaries online, and um, maybe I haven't read what I need to, but what are the rules surrounding people wanting to grow cannabis in their gardens outside? It seems like a lot of the language in the bill is focused on indoor growing. Okay. Question from John about growing. What are the rules there? Absolutely. Uh, Inside or outside, you are able to grow eight plants, uh, up to four of them flowering at any one time. So you can grow out in your garden. You can grow inside. Um, It doesn't matter. It does need to be sort of cordoned off. So you need to put some a little fence um, or something around it if you are growing outside in a visible place. Um, But you are able to grow in your backyard or you know, under grow lights inside. And there are, again, limits on the amounts. Correct. The number of plants. And uh, another phone call. In Edina, we have Nicholas on the line. Nicholas, what is your question about Minnesota's new cannabis law? Yeah, hey, guys. I'm just kind of wondering what Minnesota's plan is to curb the, the design and packaging for THC edibles and THC drinks so they're less attractive to kids. Uh, I was a card-carrying um, medical marijuana uh, in, in California, and one of the things I noticed right away was just the attractiveness, even to the early 20 and teens. And and I'm wondering, you know, they don't allow it for tobacco of any kind, but why does it still exist now? And what are we going to do to sort of not make it attractive to 15, 16, 17 year old kids that want to be able to eat strawberry THC 10 milligram edibles? All right, THC uh, edibles, uh, Senator Port. That's such a great question. You know, when the edibles were legalized last year, they really were sort of legalized without a whole lot of regulation around that. And it has become kind of the Wild West out there. So a portion of our bill puts in temporary regulations for those as well as sort of sweeps them into um, the the overall regulation that will be overseen by the Office of Cannabis Management. A big part of that is the packaging. Um, so it has it cannot have characters on it. It cannot look like anything that would be marketed towards children, sort of the same restrictions that we have on tobacco um, as far as advertising. There can't be billboards, um, things like that. And it has to be in childproof packaging, um, which is a a new uh, portion. Um, And it also needs to be behind the counter or in a locked case um, at any store that it's sold in. And so, again, how does this new law uh, differ uh, from the existing law passed um, in the previous legislative legislative session um, that made food and beverages containing THC legal in Minnesota? Um, You know, stores that are currently allowed to sell THC edibles and beverages, will they still be allowed to sell them as this new law goes into effect? Because this is all going under one now, one office overseeing it. Yep, they will be allowed to sell them just as they normally are. They do have to register 
by October 1st um, to become sort of into the system. It's a really easy registration process. And then eventually they will have to be licensed. But we're trying to make that portion seamless for those businesses that are already selling. Um, The biggest piece is there is now testing requirements um, to make sure that actually what's in them on the packaging is what you're getting. Because there's been problems with that. Exactly. Yeah. We did some testing um, and we worked with some labs that, that had done testing. And we saw anywhere from 0.5 milligrams in something labeled 5 milligrams up to 35 milligrams in something that was labeled 5 milligrams. Um, And there just was no infrastructure in place to do that testing and to enforce uh, for brands and stores that are selling illegal products. And so those pieces are put into place with this bill, which is really of critical importance because Minnesotans should be able to trust that what it says on the package is actually what they're getting. Bo, I want to go back to the previous uh, caller's question about growing. How does Minnesota's new law uh, allowing people to grow their own marijuana compare to other states and countries? Uh, What have you noticed there? It's pretty similar. I mean, most of the places that have passed legalization in the U.S., you know, they also allow, um, you know, some form of home grow. Now, in some places, it may be six plants. In some places, it may be more. Um, but also this idea of having some plants that, could, that are flowering and some plants that aren't, um, that's pretty consistent. Um, you know, but it's, it's in one way, it's really different from what's happening in Uruguay, which legalized in 2013. There, if you want to grow at home, you actually have to register with the government. And so obviously, it's, you know, that's not going to be the case in Minnesota. Um, but, uh, but that's pretty consistent with what we've seen in a lot of other places. All right, let's take another phone call as we talk with Senator Lindsay Port uh, from Burnsville, the chief author of the bill legalizing cannabis in the Minnesota Senate, as well as Bo Kilmer, who is a senior policy researcher at RAND, who's done a lot of research on uh, states across the nation as they have legalized marijuana. Call us at 651 651- Two two seven six thousand, and we'll take your questions and hear your thoughts uh, in Minneapolis. Let's talk to Angie. Good morning, Angie. What do you want to tell us or ask about Minnesota's new cannabis law? Uh, good morning. Thanks. Um, yes, I'm an immigration lawyer, and I was wondering if there's any provisions to provide uh, warnings to non-U.S. citizens that purchase and or use of these quote-unquote legal products could make them deportable uh, and cause them to lose their status in the United States because the I've seen this with uh, since immigration law is federal, I can practice immigration law through the whole country, and I've seen this in other states where clients come to me and they say, well, my friend said it's legal in California, so I can do it. And I'm like, well, it's not legal for you because it's a controlled substance still under federal law. So I'm wondering if there's any provisions to warn people about purchase and use and even working in or trying to open one of these businesses? Mm, Good question. Uh, Angie, they're an immigration attorney. That's a great question. Um, You know, we worked with um, a couple of the immigration law centers uh, in Minnesota and also nationally. And um, the biggest question that we got from them or the concern that we addressed in the bill was um, expungements will happen even for um, non-citizens. And so uh, the biggest uh, sort of request that we had there was to make sure that um, those expungement records are fully available to um 
folks who are going through the immigration process because once something's sealed, it's harder to get access to. And we wanted to make sure that those folks had full access to it so that as they're going through the immigration process, um, they would have that full file. You know, we don't have specifically in the bill um, requirements on education on that piece, though we do have continued outreach into communities um, to answer questions and things like that. Um, And I also expect this will be an ongoing process, just like we have liquor bills almost every year at the legislature, and it's been 100 years since prohibition. I imagine we'll have cannabis bills, and that's a great idea for, for a policy bill to add next year. And Bo, um, our caller Angie, an immigration attorney, brings up this point. Um, you have state legalization, but then you have federal laws uh, that you know say that marijuana is illegal. So, uh, how have other states handled this? Well, no, this, Angie raises a great point, and yeah, it is important to keep in mind that while it's now Minnesota is now the twenty third state, and you know, to legalize some form of cannabis supply. And now I think it's a, close to 50% of, of the U.S. population lives in states uh, that have passed legalization of cannabis. Uh, but, you know, this is still all illegal under federal law. And, uh, you know, that has implications not only potentially for immigration, uh, but also in terms of kind of what happens to the cannabis market. Because right now, since it's federally prohibited, you know, it's illegal to move cannabis across state lines. Um, but, you know, if something were to change at the federal level and it was no longer prohibited to move cannabis, um, you, know, um, you know, across states, you know, that would lead to a dramatic shift into the kind of the economics. And also, you know, that's when a lot of the larger companies would get involved. Um, so that's important to kind of keep in mind, especially when trying to project out, okay, what does this mean for Minnesota in year one? What does it mean for Minnesota in year five? You know, a lot's going to depend on kind of what happens at the federal level. Uh, a personal question I have, this has come up in previous shows we've done about uh, legalizing marijuana, work environments, what do people need to know about what their employers still can do? I know even though marijuana will use, use will still be legal, will soon be legal here in Minnesota, you could still be penalized at work depending upon the kind of job you have. Uh, employers can prohibit use, right? Yeah, it depends. So we uh, specified a group of safety related jobs. So if you care for children, if you um, care for medical patients, um, if you drive a truck, uh, if you drive a school bus, sort of those safety dependent jobs, and there's a list of them in the bill, um, then your employer can still do regular drug testing. They do have to let you know that they will continue to do regular drug testing or if they're going to. Um, But if you have a job outside of that, say you work in retail or you work um, in manufacturing or at a warehouse and you are not in one of those safety-related jobs, you are able to use cannabis in your off time. Obviously, you can't use it while at work. Your employer can still prohibit that. And just like you couldn't show up to work intoxicated on alcohol, Mm -hmm. you also can't, uh, you know, your employer could fire you for showing up intoxicated on marijuana. But they can no longer drug test you for marijuana if you are not in one of those safety-related roles. All right. Uh, Another call uh, from a listener uh, down in southern Minnesota in Austin. Jeff is on the phone. Good morning, Jeff. Thank you for calling in. And what is your question about Minnesota's new cannabis law? Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. 
Well, uh, Senator Port knows I'm a hemp farmer and a retailer in southern Minnesota. We also have a store in uh, Duluth. And, uh, you know, as we're reading the bill, uh, we realize that the bill is handicapping CBD companies. And I just got a notice yesterday that our CBG and CBD flour are now illegal to be sold. And we have vast quantities of uh, uh, mid-potency oils in our inventories that are going to be deemed illegal. And those rights to sell those products are going to medical. So I guess, to me, being a little skeptical uh, about the bill, uh, there's a lot of things it does that are good. But how do we reconcile uh, this gift to medical while it's kneecapping uh, small CBD companies along the way, all the way up to legalization, including the 10% tax on CBD before recreational sales even start? All right, that's Jeff in Austin. Uh, concerned about the hemp industry, and Senator Port, you, you talked about this Office of Cannabis Management, all of these products now coming under one office to oversee everything. And, and what have you uh, said to Jeff in in the past, and what do you say to him now? Yeah, we've worked really closely with the hemp industry um, to make sure that we make this as seamless as possible, while also understanding that there does need to be regulation on this industry that just simply has not existed in the past. Um, And a lot of that rulemaking will come out in the next year through the Office of Cannabis Management. So they'll be able to iron out some of those concerns on specific um, CBD and, uh, you know, things like that. Really, this bill is focused on the THC level in things. And so, um, you know, if it is not above um, or if it does not have THC in it, the bill really is not designed to restrict it. And that will come through the rulemaking if there is any confusion on it. But if it doesn't have THC in it, the bill doesn't specifically address it. And we worked with the Department of Agriculture um, and uh, the Department of Medical Cannabis um, to to make sure that that's true. But really, I I think the biggest thing is we want to make sure that what Minnesotans are getting is actually what it says on the package and that it's safe and regulated. Now, Bo, I know that you are a researcher on this. When we talk about confusion, I am very confused. I mean, there's a a lot of terms. We're talking about CBD products. We're talking about THC products. Uh, and, and do you find that there's still a lot of confusion about cannabis project uh, products and, and hemp products and what the differences are and, and what people are, are using and the, and the effects of them? Absolutely, Angela. You know, as a researcher, you know, when we're, when we're evaluating policies, you know, we'd look at these different surveys and, you know, 10, 15 years ago, they would include questions about, well, did you use marijuana or hashish in the past month? You know, um, but now just given the number of products that people are using, right? Um, I mean, in terms of, you know, the different tinctures, the, the vape pens, the edibles, the stuff with Delta 9 THC, the stuff with Delta 8 THC. And from a research perspective, um, it's created a lot of confusion, mm-hmm. you know, because some people, you know, who may be using Delta-8 products may say that they're not using cannabis. Other people who are using Delta-8 products may say they are. So actually, from a research perspective, we've actually had to go back and kind of restructure how we ask about cannabis products. Um, so it's no longer just some kind of general question. You have to ask, was it just CBD? Is there THC in there? Is it Delta-8? And so one of the things I think is going to be useful for Minnesota is, and I don't know to what extent, my, my guess is that there are some state surveys, 
in Minnesota um, that ask residents about uh, cannabis use patterns. Um, I, if it hasn't already uh, changed, I think it's going to be really important uh, for kind of the public health folks that are working on those surveys mm-hmm. to begin changing the questions so we get a much better idea about what people are consuming and how much they're consuming. And ideally, you'd want to try to get that in place kind of before the stores opened. So then that way, you might be able to get a better sense of, well, what was the effect of opening the stores on various health outcomes, right? Because if you're trying to correlate cannabis use with either the health benefits or the health risks, you want to know about the types of products people are using and, uh, and also the amounts. And so we've got a lot of work. And so hopefully, you know, to the extent that, you know, the stores aren't going to open in Minnesota until, you know, early 2025, hopefully they can make some changes to those, uh, um, to some of the existing surveys. Uh, so Minnesotans will have the best uh, information mm-hmm. available. And, you know, I guess to that end, you know, as a researcher, one of the things I really liked about the bill is that it uh, allocated over $3 million to the University of Minnesota uh, to set up a center for cannabis research. And so I think that's going to be a really valuable research uh, for state residents and the policymakers, uh, you know, because, you know, they're going to be things are going to be unexpected. You know, there are going to be hiccups along the way. And to the extent that you'll have kind of an in-state research unit kind of helping uh, guide policy, I think it's going to be really important. Oh, I had I had missed this. So tell me about that, uh, Senator Report. Uh, researchers will be documenting, keeping track of what? Yeah, it's um, it, the University of Minnesota Research Grant specifically um, will will document both um, use and public health effects, but also um, exactly as as uh, you know, folks were asking about you know the different products and the different types of cannabis that are out there and how they affect public health um, and public um, consumption plans. We also have a baseline survey in here, which will be done over the next year so that we can get exactly um, exactly that. What are folks using now and how is that going to change then once um, you know the stores open? And we'll do another survey after the stores open so that we understand the public health outcomes and how we can best address it. There's over $5 million in this uh, bill for studies and surveys to make sure that we are getting accurate information from, you know, broad public health, but also from youth. How are youth using um, and and how does that change with legalization? In uh, previous talk shows, many of the phone calls we've received have dealt with health issues, um, the the risk that it poses uh, to people uh, dealing with addiction, the risk posed to uh, people under 21. And so how do you describe how the law has uh, tried to address protecting teenagers and, and, and young adults, folks under 21? Um, because I think there is an attitude among a lot of people of, well, if it's legal, it must be okay. Yeah, I would say that this is the piece that was the sort of most difficult for me. Um, I'm a mom. And so I think a lot about as my kids get older, what are they going to have access to what's out there? I I have a 12 year old, you know, it's not that far in her future before this is going to be something that she probably encounters. And so this is probably encountering it. She probably is. Yeah. Um, So this is something I took really seriously and worked with parents, worked with um, Hennepin um, Health, worked with with the poison control line. We really 
studied what happened in other states as well. Um, we gave additional money to the poison control line, who's already, um, actually after Michigan legalized, Minnesota's poisonings in children from cannabis went up higher than Michigan's did. Um, you know, because we're right across state lines, it's obviously crossing state lines, um, you know, whether it's it was legal or not. Um, and so we know that these health crises exist, and we wanted to make sure we fully funded all of the things um, that are needed to make sure that resources are out there. The other piece we fund really deeply in, in this um, bill is public health awareness, particularly for youth that is from peer-to-peer sources. Uh, we saw in Minnesota, we were sort of a leader with target market back 10, 15, 20 years ago with smoking that really uh, brought down rates of teen smoking by peer-to-peer campaigns. So we put millions of dollars ongoing money, not just in the first years, um, but ongoing throughout the perpetuity of, of this bill, um, peer-to-peer education about the risks of cannabis And we have seen some evidence in some states that have peer-to-peer education that the age of the first use of cannabis actually goes up in states that have legalized and have done this sort of broad education um, to, you know, tell kids the risks that are out there. And also, you know, legalizing can help reduce the illicit market significantly. Um, And so once it's the illicit market, you know, doesn't exist as easily and broadly as it does right now, it will also be harder for kids to get access. Bo, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. As a researcher, you know, does legalizing cannabis make it more or less likely that teenagers and, and young adults will start using cannabis and possibly become heavy users? Yeah, so, there, you know, there's been a fair amount of research on this. And, uh, you know, so typically what researchers would do is they would look at the states that legalized and kind of compare them to the states that didn't legalize. It's kind of what researchers call a differences and differences approach. Um, you know, but early on, you only had a few states. You didn't have a lot of data. Um, but I would say the, the early research on this suggested that as states legalized, um, that it didn't really have much of an effect on what we would call past month prevalence. That is, you know, did you use in the past month? And so the research tended to suggest that, look, legalization doesn't have much of an effect on past month use, or it may even decrease it. Um, so there really was no evidence early on um, that there was any, any type of increase. That said, um, there was a new study that came out uh, about a, a little less than a year ago, which used kind of, was much more kind of rigorous and used additional years of data. And they actually found that when states adopted uh, recreational marijuana laws and that they had dispensaries, that it increased uh, the probability, or that increased past month prevalence by 15%. So this is one of the first studies to show that there was an increase. And actually, you know, from a methodological uh, perspective, it was more rigorous than the other studies. But we need to step back and say, well, do we really care about past month prevalence in terms of when we're thinking about the health consequences? You know, a lot of what we need to do is not just whether or not somebody used in the past month, but, you know, how frequently were they using, you know, what products were they using? And this is where, you know, the surveys that Senator Port referenced, I think are going to be really helpful. And then also, you know, at the end of the day, we also want to know, you know, does legalization um, lead to people 
experiencing more problems with cannabis. You know, it can cause problems for them and others. And, you know, there's a diagnosis called cannabis use disorder. Um, and, um, and there hasn't been much research on that. Um, there was one study, um, you know, that was, came out in the Journal of American Medical Association a, a couple of years ago. And it did find that, uh, um, uh, that compared to the non-legalization states, that in legalization state, those aged 12 to 17 actually experienced a, a larger increase in cannabis use disorder. Um, but that said, you know, they didn't completely hang their head on that. They said there could be some other things explaining that. So the takeaway is we have a lot to learn about how cannabis legalization affects problem use. And, uh, and, and, and with that, we also need to think about the types of products because mm -hmm. with legalization, you know, what we've seen in a number of states is that the average potency of the THC levels tend to increase. And then, you know, just the availability of a lot of these concentrates and a lot of these other products that can be 80, 85, 90% THC. You know, we still have a lot to learn about the health consequences of those particular products. Let's take another phone call as we talk about uh, Minnesota's new cannabis law. I have Senator Lindsey Port in the studio with me, the chief author of the bill legalizing cannabis in the Minnesota Senate, as well as Bo Kilmer, who is a senior policy researcher at RAND, uh, calling in from California this morning. Uh, he is the co-author of the book Marijuana Legalization, What Everyone Needs to Know. Taking your phone calls at 651-227-6000 or 800-242-227. 2828. Uh, lots of phone calls. Our lines are full. Let's take this call in Minneapolis. Steve is on the phone this morning. Hi, Steve. Thank you for waiting. And what did you want to share or ask? Yeah, thanks for taking my call. My wife has had MS for uh, 25 years, and she uh, has dramatic relief from spasticity and uh, pain uh, using cannabis. And uh, I have a three-part question. Okay, we can probably just get, get one of these questions in because we have so many calls, Steve. So can you pick okay, one? Okay, sure. Uh, the cost. Uh, the uh, cost per ounce in Minnesota is about $450 versus Denver. That's at $185. Uh, do costs expect to be driven down uh, with recreational marijuana legalization? Mm. All right, Steve in Minneapolis. So yeah, we've had this medical marijuana program in place for years. Uh, it is expensive. Uh, what what happens now? What do you see changing? We absolutely expect the cost to go down uh, with the creation of the recreational program, um, knowing that really uh, availability and demand, um, su but supply will massively increase across the state. Um, right now, there are only two medical marijuana companies in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And so with the creation of um, a, a whole industry that will be able to sell, we absolutely expect the cost to go down significantly. Um, also, starting in July, uh, medical patients, the annual fee or the registration fee is, uh, we're, we're lowering that to zero. Um, we want folks to be able to make sure that they have access to their medical marijuana as easily as possible. And we understand cost has been very prohibitive here in Minnesota. So we did put things in place to start driving that cost down. Um, and opening up the not just the recreational market, but also the medical market um, to new companies. Uh, right now, the there are only two licenses allowed in Minnesota, and that will no longer be the case. Let's take a phone call uh, from St. Paul. Coach, Angela, oh, if, 
Yes. Well, if I could just add Go ahead, to, uh, yes. you know, to uh, what Senator Port said, when we look at how legalization has affected the prices in other states, mm-hmm. we definitely see some really big declines. You know, it, it takes a while for production to ramp up, but Steve, you should expect those prices to go down quite a bit. All right. That's what we've seen in other states. Yes. All right. Thank you, Bo. Uh, in St. Paul, we have a, a caller on the line. This is Kojo. Uh, Kojo, go ahead with your question. Yeah. Hi. Um, thank you for taking my call. Yes. Yeah. I'm a, a tobacco shop owner right here in St. Paul. Mm-hmm. And uh, my first question is, are we going to be allowed to sell it? And the second question will be about dispensaries. Is there anything in the bill we're going to give chance opportunity to the people of color to be able to own dispensaries because right. of the cost and all the you know, difficulty to get the application through because of the, and the connection that other people have mm-hmm. you know, to get the application through. All right, let's talk about that. The, the business side of, of this, Senator Port, uh, who can get a license to sell marijuana under the new law? And are there some provisions in there that will make it more equitable for people who want to start a business? I'm so glad you asked this question, Kojo, um, because this was a big part of the business development side of this bill. We know, again, as I said at the beginning, that communities of color have been disproportionately harmed by cannabis prohibition. So we wanted to make sure with this bill that they are also able to really take advantage of being a part of this brand new industry. So there is um, social equity applications, um, which those are folks who live in a community who has been disproportionately harmed by cannabis, um, who are, you know, who have been personally harmed by cannabis. So if you have a past cannabis conviction, you are able to um, apply under this. If someone in your family or your community, if you live in an area that has been sort of over-policed, you are able to apply under this social equity application. And those jump to the beginning of the line. Um, Those are really given sort of higher preference in licensing. So we want to make sure that those folks across our state are able to get licenses to open those dispensaries. Um, And Kojo, to your question of if you as a tobacco shop could become a dispensary, absolutely. You just have to apply. Um, You know, tobacco shops are already 21 plus. um, So they have a lot of the things set up that they would need to be. Um, So it really wouldn't be a huge undertaking or an additional cost. They'll just have to go through the application process like anyone else. And Bo, what can you share about what you've seen in other states, uh, this licensing process and who is uh, able to to, you know, to sell and be able to, to create a business out of this? Yeah, this uh, tends to take a lot, a lot of time um, in terms of you know issuing the licenses, and uh, you know a lot of places will have certain start dates, but oftentimes it takes a lot longer. So that's one thing, you know, e- even even with Minnesota thinking about doing this right now and hope, ho- hoping to open up the stores, you know, other states have you know you run into different issues, and also when you start distributing licenses, you know, there could be concerns about lawsuits. Um, but getting back to this larger picture of social equity, you know, we have seen more states kind of going toward this license preference model, right, in terms of, you know, trying to give licenses to those that have been disproportionately affected by cannabis prohibition with the idea of, you know, possibly helping out, kind of help build wealth in those communities. But, you know, that's only one approach. You know, another approach is to actually use the tax revenues uh, to kind of help support programs to build wealth in these communities. 
you know, for example, in Evanston, Illinois, you know, they're using some of their cannabis tax revenues for slavery reparations. So there are a lot of different options there. You can do the, uh, you know, they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. Um, but this is something that, you know, especially with the new center being um, um, funded at University of Minnesota, this is something that they can actually look at in terms of, okay, who's getting the licenses? How are they benefiting? And so, uh, so to kind of to be thinking about that early on, I think it's going to be really important. Um, but that said, I would like, you know, as I said, a lot of places, you, you, you know, the rollout can often take longer. Uh, so just don't be surprised if, if you don't have all of the stores open, you know, right in that first quarter of 2025. Anything and, to add to that? Yeah, I'll just add, um, Bo makes a great point, And actually, the bill does both of those things. Um, we do give preference to social equity applicants to get them into the business. But we also have a program in the bill called Can Renew, um, which is community-based grants that are given um, to communities who can show disproportionate harm from cannabis, who can show, um, you know, really that they are part of communities that have been uh, disproportionately over-policed or harmed by prohibition. And those are ongoing grants uh, through, you know, into perpetuity. We put them in the tails of the bill at 20 10, 20, 30 million dollars a year to make sure that as that tax revenue grows here in Minnesota, it is going back into communities that have been harmed. And that can be into educational programs. It can be into um, job programs. It can be into rebuilding portions of the community. It can be into college grants. Um, It can, you know, it really is a form of payment back, reparation, if if you will, into communities that have been disproportionately harmed. Uh, I want to address a, a question um, that's been um, trending a lot online, has to do with tribal medical marijuana dispensaries. Uh, what does this new law say about them, Senator Port? Absolutely. We really wanted to make sure we respected the sovereignty of our tribal nations here in Minnesota. So all, um, all of the tribal uh, sort of ability to do their medical marijuana programs or get into the recreational side is able to be done to, you know, their specifications through compacting. So that is sort of the agreements that they make with the state government and tribal governments each year or each couple of years. Um, We don't restrict it in any way in the bill. We say that is all um, a decision that their sovereign nations make with the governor, um, and they are able to be in control of that. And what about, as we talk about uh, the business side of this, tax revenue? Uh, How will tax revenue from marijuana sales be used? Absolutely. We kept our taxes pretty low. That was uh, an ongoing choice that we made because we didn't want to outprice, you know, the legal market from the illicit market. So the tax rate is at 10%. And 20% of that goes to local communities, so cities and counties, to help with enforcement, public health, things like that. Um, We really worked in partnership with uh, the cities and counties to make sure that they had the resources to appropriately, um, you know, they'll be doing the day-to-day monitoring of regulations and things like that. The rest of it, that 80% of the rest of it, goes into the general fund. Some of it is used in sort of these ongoing ways to um, continue to fund the Can Renew program to communities, to fund treatment and prevention, um, to fund uh, training, education, those sorts of things, and ongoing uh, grants to 
uh, business development and things like that. But the rest of it just goes into the general fund uh, to continue to build our state's ability to provide the services that we that our residents need. And Bo, I have a question, a personal question. Uh, something I've been thinking a lot about is um, is is driving. And I want to know what research has has shown or what you've seen in other states when it comes to um, you know people being on on out on the road and and whether or not uh, if is there an accurate test for cannabis that could detect whether someone's coordination or judgment is affected by canna- cannabis use when they're driving. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, no, that's, yeah, that's tough because, you know, THC and the metabolites, they'll stay in your body for quite some time. So, you know, you can consume on a Friday, you know, get in a car accident on Monday. It can still show up in your system, but, you know, um, it, may, it wasn't caused by your uh, cannabis use. So that is still something um, that, and look, there are a lot of companies <laughs> that are trying, trying to come up with something like a cannabis breathalyzer. Um, but, I, you know, one of the things that uh, I liked about the, uh, um, about the Minnesota law is that it seemed to put a fair amount of money into drug recognition experts, so kind of helping to train police. Because um, oh. I think right now that's going to be the best thing that you can do uh, in terms of being able to detect whether or not people are under the influence, not just of cannabis, but of other drugs as well. Because we don't necessarily have something similar to a breathalyzer uh, for cannabis. Um, and I do think, and once again, I think this is where it's going to be great that the University of Minnesota is going to be doing the public health research. I think when you're going to be looking at the effects of legalization on, um, on kind of road safety or road accidents in, uh, in the state, it's going to be important not just to focus on, well, how does it influence those crashes uh, that may be attributable to THC, but you want to be objective. You want to look at what happens to the total number of crashes or the total number of uh, auto-related uh, fatalities, because one of the big questions is we don't know how this is going to influence alcohol use and driving under the influence of alcohol. So that's a big question. And so that's why when you're kind of, when you're going to be doing these types of assessments, you want to make sure you kind of focus on these larger aggregate counts in terms of the total number of crashes, the total number of, uh, of fatalities, not just those linked to cannabis. Senator Port, uh, does the new law address people getting in a car and, and driving while their coordination or judgment is in, impaired by cannabis? It, it does. You know, it, it adds this to the list of, um, you know, intoxicating substances that you are not allowed to drive. It specifically specifies that you are not allowed to drive while intoxicated or under the influence of cannabis, just like we do with alcohol. Um, you know, just like it's illegal to drive while intoxicated, Um no matter the substance. The big piece that I want to highlight is exactly what Bo says. We put a ton of money in this bill into training drug recognition experts. We already have some of them across Minnesota. And that's what the troopers um, and the law enforcement that we worked with said was most effective for being able to do sort of roadside sobriety tests to check if people are under the influence and understand what they're under the influence of, which can also help provide life-saving care if they need, um, you know, assistance on the side of the road. And in our last uh, uh, 30 seconds here, Senator, what will you be watching very closely as this all rolls out um the first you know phase of it on August 1. What are you keeping an eye on? Yeah, absolutely. You know, a few things. One, use among young people. I think that's something that is important to a lot of people. Certainly to me as a mom is important. I will be watching that. I'll also be watching. We really worked hard in this bill to make sure that it was focused on getting licenses out to small and medium-sized businesses, Minnesota-owned businesses, 
not to sort of wave a flag and say Minnesota is open for big multinational or multi-state conglomerates to come in, but we really want to keep it local. Um, so making sure that that process works and that community members who have been harmed are able to get in on the process. All right. Our time is up, but I know we will be revisiting this topic throughout the summer, fall and winter. Uh, we've been talking about Minnesota's new cannabis law. And our guests today have included Senator Lindsay Port, a DFL senator from Burnsville and the chief author of the bill uh, legalizing cannabis in the Minnesota Senate, as well as Bo Kilmer, our friend there, a senior policy researcher at RAND. He's the author of the book, Marijuana Legalization, What Everyone Needs to Know. Thank you, Senator Port. Thank you, Bo. And to our listeners, I want to remind you that NPR News is community-supported public media, and it is listeners like you who have the power to make a difference. So right now, start your new monthly gift. It'll be matched by the NPR Member Fund for a full year. Make your contribution today at nprnews.org. Today's conversation was produced by Maya Beckstrom. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.